The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boasts in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 97, which along with Psalm 99 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, November the 16th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our look at the first book of the Maccabees, chapter 3, verses 25 to 41. The link is over there in the description box, by the way, to that reading. Um, Continuing in Revelation, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 8, and then finally in the Gospel according to Matthew, the 17th chapter, the 14th through the 21st verses. So <clears throat> we're picking up the, the thread of the, remember they had, the they, the Maccabees and their um, allies, had defeated the king of kings of Samaria and Syria and, and sent them home with their tails between their legs. And so now they're picking up some uh, unwanted attention, let's say. So then Judas and his brothers began to be feared, and terror fell on the Gentiles all around them. His fame reached the king, and the Gentiles talked of the battles of Judas. When King Antiochus heard these reports, he was greatly angered, and he sent and gathered all the forces of his kingdom, a very strong army. He opened his coffers and gave a year's pay to his forces and ordered them to be ready for any need. So he prepaid them, essentially. He's, he's um, given them the money so that they can uh, be, be prepared in any event that he might need them. And then he saw that the money in the treasury was exhausted and that the revenues from the country were small because of the dispersion or the dissension and disaster he had caused in the land by abolishing the laws that had existed from the earliest days. Uh, so he had essentially caused the problem where the tax revenues were going down because people were refusing to pay, and, and they were because of what he had done. So there's a rebellion and a revolt going on. It, it Maybe the thing to do sometimes is to refuse to pay taxes so long as, as we are not being respected. Anyway, that's what the the Jews that were there were doing. They were refusing to pay the taxes. And so it's odd that he doesn't go there to collect the taxes. That's not what he does. Instead, he feared that he might not have such funds as he had before for his expenses and for the gifts that he used to give more lavishly than preceding kings. So he had depleted the treasury by... um, by refusing, by giving out these gifts and spending more lavish lifestyle than the ones who had gone before him, he was greatly perplexed in mind. <laughs> confused? You're confused because revenues went down when you began to treat people like garbage, when you refused to actually uh, respect them in any way. Your revenues went down and and your expenditures had gone up, and you were perplexed that the treasury was was um, depleted. Then he determined to go to Persia and collect the revenues from those regions and raise a large fund. Um, So he he, he determined not to go mess with those Israelite people, but to go to Persia 
and raise some funds there because it was a, a wealthier place that was more willing to submit because they had been well and truly conquered by that point in time. He left Lysias, a distinguished man of royal lineage, in charge of the king's affairs from the river Euphrates to the borders of Egypt. So everything south and east was given over to Lysias to, to look over and take care of. Lysias was also to take care of his son Antiochus until he returned. And he turned over to Lysias half of his forces and the elephants and gave him orders about all that he wanted done. As for the residents of Judea and Jerusalem, Lysias was to send a force against them to wipe out and destroy the strength of Israel and the remnant of Jerusalem. He was to banish the memory of them from the place, settle aliens in all their territory, and distribute their land by lot. Then the king took the remaining half of his forces and left Antioch, his capital, in the 147th year. He crossed the Euphrates River and went through the upper provinces. So the northern provinces of his um, kingdom is where he went to raise this money, and he sends Lysias down there to do his dirty work. So Lysias chose Ptolemy, son of Dorimenes, and Nicanor and Gorgias, able men among the friends of the king. So these people are the ones who had been raised up and elevated to the status of friend of the king, which was an official designation, not just some random way of speaking about, about the king's friends. And he sent with them 40,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry. So there's 7,000 on horse and 40,000 people marching to go into the land of Judah and destroy it as the king had commanded. I mean, it's an enormous force to send against these people because it's a rebel army, essentially. It's not all the people of the land. It's a small rebel army who are determined to, to maintain um, Jewish religion and practice in the land that God had given them. So for these 47,000 set out with their entire force when they arrived and encamped near Emmaus in the plain. So Emmaus is mentioned in Luke's gospel in the 24th chapter as the disciples who are leaving Jerusalem, going back home, are joined on the journey by Jesus, and so they are on the road to Emmaus at that time. And so this is that Emmaus, and so this 47,000 come and they camped near Emmaus, and when the traders of the region heard what was said to them, they took silver and gold, an immense amount, and fetters, and went to the camp to get the Israelites for slaves, and forces from Syria and the land of the Philistines joined them. So, so in addition to these 47,000, now they have uh, laid before people who are trading in the region, people who are, who are making their money in the region, they, they, they're also giving them money to go out and do the dirty work and to try and uh, enslave these Israelites. And then others from Syria, from the east, or for the, sorry, from the west, in the land of the Philistines also, so from the west, have come and joined those forces. So this is this enormous force against this little rebel group of people in Israel. And so they, they've co-opted pretty much everybody in the region to join this battle, whether they're even military or not. They're getting even traitors. And remember, Joseph, one of the patriarchs, was sold into slavery through these Midianite traitors. And so it's the same thing here is, is that that they want to, to engage in slave trade with the Israelites. In the gospel lesson today, you remember yesterday, they've been up on the Mount of Transfiguration and seen Jesus transfigured. They've heard the voice from heaven saying, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. So they've gone through 
that with him. And as they come back, um, they come back to the down to where the rest of the disciples are. They see a crowd, and a man came up to them and kneeling before him, said, Lord. It, it's it, There's two things that happen here immediately. This man comes and kneels before Jesus, which is an odd posture, certainly, but then calls him Lord and says, have mercy on my son. So he's he's recognizing that Jesus has power in him. For he has seizures and suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. Well, as the father of an adult son now who has, who has had some seizures over the last little bit, I can testify that this is one of the most terrifying things I've ever experienced in my life. When, when Will, he's had four seizures, I think, now, and, and when he has them, it's frightening. And it's frightening to think what would happen if we weren't around, for instance, or if he was somewhere where there was danger near him. One of the key things to do is keep him away from anything that, while they're violently jerking around, could hurt them. And so this guy, his father is coming, and he believed that the disciples could do something here. Instead, what's happened is it's no better than it was. It kind of reminds me at some level of the woman uh, with the issue of blood who had been suffering under doctors for a dozen years without being able to get any relief from it. And so here this man, no doubt at its wits at its wits end about what's going on and, and comes to the disciples and they're unable to do anything. He had faith, obviously, in the disciples believing that they could do something. And the disciples themselves must have had faith that they could do something and were unable to because they had some experience of being able to deal with these kinds of issues. And Jesus' answer to this is, a faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. So there's this power in Jesus that the disciples were, were not blessed with or were unable to access. And they come to Jesus, the disciples do, afterwards and say, how come we couldn't cast it out? His response, in, in two places, in, the, in one of the other Gospels, he speaks of this kind come out only with prayer which would, would tend to indicate that the problem here is, is that, that they, were, they had too much faith in themselves, that they, they were trying to do it independently of prayer, that they needed to go to the Father, that, that, it, that it was not a power that was just delegated to them, that they had to pray about this thing and, and ask the Father to do it. They couldn't depend on power being resident in them. No, they needed to, to go to prayer. But here the answer is because of your little faith. Truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, I, I, that yes, I agree with that 100%, but how do we use that faith? How do we access that faith, and, and when is it proper? And, and in this case, it seems that Jesus was saying, if you just had enough faith, you could have done this thing. And I don't think there's any question that there's truth in that. Um, how we get to a pure faith like that is a different question, but it comes from experience with the Lord. You know, the reality is is that the, the more often that you tap into that power through prayer or through faith, the greater that will grow in you, and, and faith will actually actually become greater through its exercise and through seeing the Lord do these things. We, we need to have a history in Him. 
And it's never too late to build that history. It's just begin to actively step out in faith in those situations. Instead of saying, I'll be praying for you, do it. Pray right then. Don't say, I'll be praying for you. Pray for the person right there and then. And live expectantly. I've told the story before. There was a guy that I didn't know very well, and, and I went to him in the hospital, and he was having some heart issues, and, and they were serious heart issues. He was going to have some surgery the next day, and if the surgery didn't work, he was probably going to die and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I went in and prayed with this guy, and I, and I just, all I did was pray with him, and, and I prayed that he would be healed. I mean, it's as simple as that. I don't have to tell God how to heal him. I just, Lord, hey, just, you know, would you heal this guy? You know the problems, and you know the solutions. You know him better than I do. You're the one who knitted him together in his mother's womb. You're still completely aware of, of what his needs are and how to fix those things, and and left it at that. I, I did. And then later, years later, I find out God utterly healed this guy overnight. He, he went in. They said, we need to do a test one more time. We need to get make sure that we're hitting the right things. And they came back in and said, we don't understand this, but that problem is resolved. It's gone. And he said that, that the way that I prayed with faith impacted him dramatically. So I'm not sure if it's my faith, his faith, a combination of the two, that, that God just did the work. You know, it was, it, faith made it operable, I guess, but, but God did this work. And, and he said that he had no faith at all before that visit. And like I said, all I did was pray in faith, believing God heals people. I've seen him heal people. I didn't live with any kind of doubts about that at all. I mean, there's certainly been things in my life that I've prayed with for, for years and years and years and never seen those things come to pass. But, but that doesn't mean I stopped praying for them because I believe in God's timing. I believe that God has the power to do anything. And I leave the details to him as much as I possibly can. I'm not perfect at that, certainly. Um, there's a lot of things where I get very frustrated with God, but the re- because His timing and my timing are not lining up. That's the best way to say that. But we have to nonetheless continue to pray in faith, believing that God could do this thing, but knowing that not a single one of us gets out of this life alive. In the Revelation passage, we're, we're told about the new heavens and the new earth, the battle at Armageddon that, that wasn't, has already happened, and, and judgment has happened. We've, the books of life and the books of the deeds of men have been opened, and the dead and the living have been judged. So now I see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. Remember in the reading yesterday, he sees the white throne, and, and the white throne, as soon as it appears, everything else rolls away. The sea, the earth, the sky, every bit of it goes away, and there's nothing left except that. And so we're going to have to create. He's going to have to create from from. Um, nothingness. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this is sort of beautiful imagery here, if you think back to a wedding ceremony, that the, as we, whenever I do a wedding ceremony, I'm standing up front with the, the groom and, and the party that's with his attendants. And, and what we're standing there in the front waiting for is the appearance of the bride. And when the bride appears, then the service can properly begin. But nothing can begin until the bride shows up. And that's exactly what the image is here. This new heaven, the new earth, and the holy city are 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So everything that was marred by sin, the old creation that that we broke down and destroyed through our sin and sins, um, is passed away, and this new thing comes in, but it's not like the old thing in the sense of there's no sin in the new thing, and so all this, the death and uh, mourning and crying and pain are all gone in the new creation. And he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. What were the last words of Jesus on the cross? It is finished. And now, it is done. The, all things are in subjection under his feet. The new creation comes. The, the new creatures come. Everything evil is done away with. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so they don't get to participate in this new creation, this new world. They don't get to participate in this because they didn't obey the law. They didn't keep the law. They didn't keep faith when they were alive. And so keeping faith is keeping the law. It's doing the things that God has said to do and not doing the things God has said not to do. And we can't bless all those things and then be counted in the number of saints who get to live in the new earth. Now, that is sin, and sin is ultimately judged. And our lives tell a tale of who we're obedient to and what we truly believe. And so let's again... Let's make sure we choose our sides wisely, and let's make sure that the robes of righteousness that we've been given, that we sully those as little as possible through the rest of our lives, that we take that seriously and we take care of, of the, the, the garments of righteousness that are truly Christ's righteousness that have been entrusted to us. Let's make sure that we do that well.